0: We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car Was this unidentified flying object.
1: Can you prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body?
0: You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Keen. And I'm coming to you, as always, here reporting at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in County Cork, in the south of Ireland, where we try always to be critical, but never cynical. At least we do on this podcast. Anyway, you're very welcome to this episode. It is all about the 1992 film uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. That is the one directed by none other than Francis Ford Coppola, Coppola. is how I say it if that's a problem this episode is really going to flip you off anyway uh, with me to talk about this film which I think was my Dracula growing up is the wonderful Victoria Pearson delighted to have her back on the show Uh, I always learn a tremendous amount talking to her about history talking to her about um, uh, the gothic and the weird and we're both mega fans of this film so we had a great time talking about it incidentally I think probably the first in person interview I've done for the show in a very very long time as well. So that was wonderful. We recorded this chat a few weeks ago just at the tail end of a very unusual Irish heatwave. So you'll probably hear the uh, the the mm, the stress in our voice from uh, <laughs> having to deal with the the ungodly temperatures of uh, of 27 degrees and up really un, unheard of here for uh, people of our particular coloring and disposition so i have some fun stuff as usual at the beginning of the episode and a few nice things too and a few nice thank yous so as you know folks you can reach out and chat over on uh, twitter we are at strange ireland as always on instagram we are wide atlantic weird podcast and you can support the show at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic and i have some thanks to some nice people who did that all this month so thanks to jeremiah who um i I think i think the the website sent it through as somebody has bought you a coffee and i usually think people are trying to just be you know just be anonymous which which is which is perfectly fine if you want to be anonymous but uh, i reached out and uh, jeremiah said no 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 you can you can say my name so huge thanks to jeremiah for sending that on Uh, and thanks to hannah as well who sent a lovely message i'm just looking for it now hannah said. belated thanks for the franklin episode that's our polar horror episode that we did recently top class tales of shoe eating and worse and ravishing singing from your mother i'm now reading the ghost stories recommended by your guest that is of course leanne from the strange ways blog who spoke to me about the franklin expedition and all things polar horror related on that particular episode i think the short story we recommended was probably the captain of the pole star by arthur conan doyle which is of course a classic uh, the Franklin Expedition, Franklin himself, uh, Hannah is referring to the fact that he was sometimes known as the man who ate his shoes due to a, a previous failed expedition, which ended rather ignominiously. Um, I don't think we mentioned the shoe eating on the on the episode, but um, certainly there was a bit of Twitter chat before the episode dropped uh, from uh, fans of the Terror uh, about uh, Franklin being a bit of a shoe eater, so always glad to hear that and uh, you folks who contribute in this way by sending on coffee money will be happy to know most of the money does go towards buying books so for example this week i've sent away for a copy of the great orm of loch ness by the very odd ted holiday which is a kind of a cryptozoological classic if you've heard our episode about irish lake monsters i talked a bit about ted holiday back on that episode so I'm uh, finally tracking down all of this classic literature that I've been hearing about since I was a kid. Obviously, the internet makes that easier to do, but that's where your coffee money uh, tends to go these days. So thanks for that. Uh, We had some really, really thoughtful and intriguing critique on the Alien Big Cats episode. Some folks got in touch and said, that they felt um maybe i was kind of cherry picking some of the weirder cases and um i do get the i do get the vibe that within the community there is a very strong um take and impression that uh, a lot of people who have those sightings or have those encounters uh, don't in fact have anything mystical or weird about them or at least choose not to um to interpret them that way clearly there are a lot of people seeing them who who don 't report them now that 's something I meant to cover on the episode actually just the the very understandable sociological reasons why um, there might be more people out there having these sightings but not reporting them um i still I'm still fond of my thesis on that episode, which is that it probably is a um a, a case with something real at the core of it and then a certain amount of folklore around the edges. but I did hear from uh, let's just say an inside source or somebody with with um, inside knowledge and somebody whose work I respect tremendously who said just just to be aware of some of the people who are focusing on those more unusual more uh, paranormal cases that some of them have a bit of an agenda so I'll keep my keep my eyes open keep my ears open keep my skepticals on as they say and uh, keep researching and reading that one uh, my thinking on it might be changing a little bit and there might be another episode on that uh, at some point in the future so huge thanks to everybody who reached out and um and gave me their two cents on that particular one i'm going to recommend an episode of the impossible archive podcast not just because friend of the show eddie Mont is one of the hosts uh, but because they've had an episode recently which uh, really fits into a lot of stuff that i'm interested in they've been covering a lot of this current ufo disclosure stuff recently i've been they've been doing a tremendous bang up job of it i don't cover that stuff myself it's not really my bag um But I kind of prefer the older stuff. I prefer the UFOlogy from the 40s and 50s and 60s and stuff, back when it was a bit wild and woolly. But um, they had an episode recently, which I recommend, and their guest was Kate Dorsch, who is uh, writing, I believe, a thesis on some of the early files from Project Blue Book, which, of course, was the U.S. Air Force Department um, that dealt with UFO cases, uh, some people have kind of un- 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 uncharitably said that it was like a desk and like two guys. It it was a little bit more than that, but not a whole lot more than that. Depending on uh, which iteration of it you're talking about, it ran from the late '40s until the late uh, '60s, and um, there's a lot of great stories associated with it. But um, Kate on this episode is, is is going back to the primary material and looking through all the files and i applaud anyone doing that some of the revelations in the episode there was some stuff here that was new to me and some of it was a bit sad because um there's a few kind of staples of ufo lore being punctured here uh so you may be aware of the work of J. allen hynek of course who was the i've just finished a biography of him he was the civilian scientist advisor to blue book for much of its runtime and um, one thing I didn't know that Kate talks about is how he was actually quite down on the, the Kenneth Arnold sighting, the, the the 1947 sighting that's generally regarded as having kicked off the modern UFO era. Kenneth Arnold was the subject of one of my early episodes and why I've always been critical of the fact that I've always thought it significant that... You know, the, the the flap of UFOs that were were reported after his case was publicized were saucers, because that's what the paper said, but that wasn't what he said he saw. So people were reporting what they read, not what he initially saw. That always struck me as, hmm, let's say, significant. However, I had always regarded Arnold's sighting as at least genuine and um, a, a case where a guy genuinely saw something that he could not identify. Uh, Kate Dorsch talks in this episode about how Heinick, who... Is still a very respected guy amongst um, UFO believers and and many skeptics. Not all. Uh, he he wasn't really into this case. And given that the case itself is so fundamental to the shape that ufology took, I was surprised to hear this. So yeah, I'm I'm learning new stuff all the time. Also, the in UFO lore there is this document, this supposed document called the Estimate of the Situation, which it is I believe taken from actual Air Force terminology, Air Force or military, and. It's associated with one of the early directors of Project Blue Book, Edward Ruppelt, um, and he writes in his in his book in, in 1956. He writes, some, um, I think it's just it's just called the report on the unidentified flying objects. So he's the guy who helps to popularize that term because previously people are just calling them flying saucers. The Air Force wants a term which they deem less silly. They want it to sound more, more credible, more important, more scientific. And again, now we see that the UFO has been replaced by UAP anomalous aerial phenomena i think pretty much for the same reasons but there's this thing in ufo lore where you know the estimate of the situation is written up at the end of the first iteration of project blue book back when it was called project sign and Rupel writes in his book you know a lot of people working for them had come to believe that not only were the flying saucers real but that you know they were extraterrestrial so he was a proponent in those days at least of the eth the extraterrestrial hypothesis And they wrote this paper saying, yep, look, we think this is real. We think this is what's happening. Here's the evidence. And that it was then rubbished by the top brass and kind of scrapped. And Project Sign is replaced by, you know, Project Sign was this fairly open-minded, you know, attempt to understand what was going on. It's then replaced by Project Grudge, which is just an attempt to shut down um, the whole inquiry and just like fob people off, uh, which is fairly true. But Again, Kate Dorsch it just emphasizes how outside of RuPelt's own book, there's pretty much no evidence for this. And again, it's just a staple of UFO lore that I, I didn't quite appreciate had, was resting on such a, such a, a slim sliver of, of, of evidence. Despite the fact that RuPelt was, you know, if anybody knew it would have been him, but there's nothing else um, in, the, in the record backing him up. Again, if you want to believe that there was a conspiracy or a cover-up, that explains it. But, you know, absence of evidence and all of that. I watched a film recently which is terrible and I'm going to recommend it anyway because that's what I do. Again, UFO-themed. Remember the episode we did a very long time ago about Intruders, which was a mid-90s. I think it was 1993 TV movie about the book Intruders by Bud Hopkins. Well, if you like that, you might just like Visitors of the Night. Terrible grammar, terrible film, but I liked it anyway. This, again, mid-90s, made-for-TV movie, 1995, about alien abductions, and it's very much in that sweet spot, or that that weird period in the 90s when alien abductions were being... Hyped up by people like Bud Hopkins and John Mack, and it had this very particular flavor. And you've got all that creepy exopolitics going on, but you've also got the the breeding programs, and it's all very X Files. And there's rows of of you know alien human hybrid babies and tubes and and stuff like that. And this film gave me exactly what I wanted, which is to say that it's terrible, but it scratches all of my itches and ticks all of my boxes. It's on YouTube, and it's called Visitors of the Night. It's from 1995, and. The special effects for the creatures are pretty good. You can, you can tell somebody has gone out of their way to, um, you know, have them not be exactly your classic grey, but they are they are pretty damn close. So go check that one out. If, uh, oh, and the music throughout is just like, so Mark Snow in the X-Files from the same period. Uh, it was giving me goosebumps. So check that out. If you like such things... Now, my beer for this episode is Whirl Domination IPA. This is tremendous. It's one of my favourite beers I've had for ages. Unfortunately, it's not Irish. It is Danish, and it's from a company called, hmm, Too Old, which, oddly enough, is similar enough to the Irish word for drink, but um, I presume that's not where this comes from. So, Whirl Domination IPA, very unusual, very hoppy, very hipster. I'm enjoying it uh, to the hilt. So that's enough intro blah blah blah. You've come here to talk about 1992 Dracula, you've come here to talk about bad English accents, you've come here to talk about old-fashioned, deliberate or not, special effects and crazy hairdos. Uh, Speaking with me, of course, as I said, is the awesome Victoria Pearson. Uh, Victoria is a PhD candidate at University College Cork. Uh, she's researching the life and work of Francis Moylan, Bishop of Kerry and Cork, 1735 and to until 1815. So she is a serious history person and uh, has serious memories of watching this film back in the day. Hope you enjoy it. We're, okay, so we're uh, I'm here with Victoria Pearson, uh, very lucky to have her back on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Keith. It's always a pleasure to come on.
0: Uh, last time we spoke it was quite a while ago. That was our trip to the Hellfire Club up in Dublin.
1: Yes, it was. And if you haven't listened to the episode, please go back and give it a shout because it was a good one.
0: Yeah, we had a good time. This time we're talking about primarily Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, which is a favourite of both of ours. But before we get stuck into that. Um, I, we we're we're somewhere in Cork City, and um, we're outside, which is lovely. Nice change. We're
1: in the land beyond the forest.
0: <laughs> we are somewhere where there is a lake and trees, and uh, somewhere there is a jazz trio playing. You may pick that one up in the background. I'm not really sure how that'll sound. Um, it's it's for adding a certain element of uh, sophistication to the proceedings. I think.
1: Absolutely, you know, would uh, but- I have to admit, though, we couldn't have found a more opposite day to talk about Dracula and all things Transylvanian. But it's lovely. It's lovely to be outside in Cork and in good company.
0: True. We didn't. Uh, this is a, more of an autumny kind of an episode, and we're actually recording this um, in the midst of a really, really rather intense for Ireland heatwave. It's been 25, 26, 27 every day, not dropping below 20 at night for days on end.
1: Yeah, and I kind of feel like the old Dracula in in the start of um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, where like you, you know, the skin is nearly melting, <laughs> melting off your body. That's what it feels like.
0: So you might hear some unusual sounds. There were ducks and geese around us. There's uh, pedestrians going by. There's some yoga happening and some jazz and some water and stuff like that. So you know, nice bit of nice bit of uh, nature in the background there for you and some music too.
1: Yeah, as Dracula would say all of human life <laughs> is about us
0: the music of the night yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um we might talk about the film this we're talking of course about Coppola's 1992 version of the film which for me is like the archetypal one i guess it was the one that was always on tv when i was a kid but i don't i don't actually remember when it came out i don't remember being excited about it when it came out it came out in 1992 um, I picked it up on TV just a few years after that, but I know this one meant a lot to you at the time.
1: Well, I actually do remember it coming out and like seeing kind of like snippets of it on the television. And of course, it was way, way before we could Google anything or there was obviously no YouTube. But you, you get like sort of smacks of it on the television. And then I remember too, in the old HMV in town here in Cork City, they had that like fabulous like um stand you know of like the it was like a gray wall with this gargoyle of dracula's face and i think it must have been at the time advertising the soundtrack because it wouldn't have been out on vhs tape (laughs) i suppose at that stage but it was i remember being absolutely fascinated by that and um there was definitely as i say i don't know that they played the trailer on television or even were they giving out about it on the Late Late Show? But there was—I <laughs> did catch glimpses of it from time to time, and I was—I I was absolutely fascinated. But we were both quite fascinated and already hooked an awful lot on Dracula before nineteen ninety-two, Kian, because I think the reason we we met was because uh, we both had um, a childhood book of like an abridged version of dracula and i had i had this book like as i say i must have bought it when i was quite quite young like i'm 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 probably saying sometime in middle to late primary school and i never knew anybody else who had this one book because <laughs> it has like this really cool cover art on the front of it and you put up on your twitter feed i think <laughs> that you had this book too yeah. and it was sort of what brought us together was um was um, our abridged version of Dracula which you rightly pointed out I thought I'd picked it up on a pound shop and you said oh no no it was actually Porters in Wilton (laughs) and if anybody else is from Cork you know that that was a mecca for all the weird and unusual stuff that you could pick up as a kid here in Cork City I think it was probably like maybe about a pound or something like that but it's such a great treasure to have from your childhood (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely treasure it now
0: that's where we used to get all the enid blyton books as well
1: yeah i used to too (laughs) you got like three for the price of two or something yeah and you'd go out so eager to get your your books like maybe once a month or once a week to get get a fix
0: So I'm intending this conversation to be fairly personal. I think we're going to be talking about the film and our own recollections of it. We're not going to try and be too academic. We're not going to try and be too clever. I do, however, I couldn't resist bringing some books and I know you've made some notes. I've got my heavily annotated copy of Stoker's original Dracula and also I have a biography of Stoker called From the Shadow of Dracula by Paul Murray. And I nearly met Paul Murray once. Really? Um, I went. I went up to Dublin. I was do, I was planning an episode about Lafcadio Hearn, another Irish writer, which, right. which never got finished <laughs> because in those days, I was trying to make episodes that were like uh, documentaries. Okay. And I never got it. Like I had all this audio from people who who I interviewed, and I just never got around to editing it. And I went up to the Dublin Literary Museum, the Dublin Writers Museum, right. and they were good enough to talk to me. And they had a Lafcadio Hearn um, exhibition at the time. And it turned out that Paul Murray, who's he's written biographies about Stoker and Laugh caddy and he was giving a talk.
1: Yeah, and they do this. Like, sto- there's a Bram Stoker festival in Dublin every year, isn't it? And I, again, it's on my bucket list, but I've never quite made it. But they always try and get like interesting people to come, and people who are like really expert in this area and in in Stoker and his life. You know, so put the, put everybody, put that on your bucket list.
0: <laughs> uh, lastly, before we uh, talk about the film, I think we should do our, our drinks for the episode because yeah. it is a very sunny and warm afternoon, and because we are in Cork, Victoria, we have a very Cork-themed drink. Maybe expl- can you explain this one for people who aren't from Cork?
1: Well, in in the true spirit of Dracula, on a very sunny day, both me and Kean never drink wine. <laughs> So we're having tanora instead, which is like the local brew of um fizzy drink um and it's it's it really is sort of a kind of a staunch cork cork thing um this I remember seeing recently there was a documentary one of the many documentaries on the telly about the burning of cork because we're going through the deck of the centenaries here in Cork City at the moment, and it mentioned um the burning of cork in december nineteen twenty and it even said, like as a byline, that the that the black and tans burnt down the Tanora factory. Like, did their <laughs> evil no no bounds? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just a quick note for folks listening outside of Ireland or who aren't familiar with Irish history. Victoria is referring to the fact that, as we recorded, um, we're in the middle of a lot of centenaries, and that's because a lot of important things happened in the history of Irish independence roughly between about 1916 and 1923, including uh, the War of Independence and then an Irish Civil War after that. So a lot of anniversaries. Um, The Black and Tans she's referring to, of course, were the rather infamous Um, uh, addition to the British uh, military and police force who were in Ireland at the time they were kind of known for uh, brutal reprisals during the war and um, occupy a kind of a still a very folk demon kind of a position in Irish society and uh, in 1920 in particular they burned a section of the centre of Cork City to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh that's enough to make a cork man's blood boil yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice okay so that that's our that's our our beverage for the episode covered and uh, yeah let, let's talk about the film so francis ford coppola early 90s he's got this idea to uh to make a version of dracula and he's looking at the previous editions of dracula he's looking at previous adaptations what's what's his idea what's his mo what's how what you know how is he going to approach this to to make it different from other other versions? What do you think he had in mind?
1: Well, it's really interesting. You, know, in preparation for the show, I was going over, looking back at like old books that I had, and of course, I was looking at. There's, there's a really, really good making of the Bram Stoker's Dracula available on YouTube for anybody that's interested, and apparently Francis Ford Coppola, this was like his saving grace. Mm. They're like the, the Godfather Part Three had nearly bankrupted him and his company, and um. Um, he was looking for something I think to um, kind of get his teeth into and kind of get his production company back on track and apparently it was Winona Ryder who introduced mm. him to the script, she had been originally cast to play the daughter in The Godfather Part 3 I think that ends up being played by Coppola's own daughter, yeah, okay. Sophia yeah. and um, I think it's his production company, isn't it? Sophia Trope And he, um, so Winona Ryder has to back out because, you know, she was so popular there in the early 90s. I think she was just suffering from a bit of exhaustion. But I think she didn't really want to fall out with Coppola either. So she came to him with this script that she had read and and, and liked. And he thought that he would give it a go. But there was all these kind of weird stipulations to it, you know, because it was sort of like... I don't think anybody was willing to give him like a massive budget to make it so he he actually agreed to make it entirely on sound stages so there's no like locations in it they're all like purposeful sound stages and then he makes a big um thing about you know it was sort of you know highly intellectual decision and you know a really (laughs) creative artistic direction that they would do all of this like the, the special effects in camera you know i think there's only one sort of you know um generated special effect and that's the the blue flames you know yes. that's around the castle yes. when they approach in the coach um but i think that was probably a bit of a uh, a financial decision as well that they would um they'd pull all these like old-fashioned tricks out of the bag you know because we they didn't really have the money to be splurging on all these like you know digital special effects
0: editing Key in here while editing the episode i came across a, a couple more really cool articles about the uh, special effects behind the film and i just wanted to mention a couple of things so um it, there's a great article on, on Den of Geek, of all places, um, by David Crowe, called Bram Stoker's Dracula, The Seduction of Old School Movie Magic, and they talk a bit about how it was absolutely partly a financial decision because Coppola had this kind of reputation for going over a budget at the time he was preparing for Dracula and part of the reason why he got the deal was because he promised he wouldn't uh, over go over budget by going by filming on a location. And he said instead he would do it all on set and all special effects in camera. And uh, the quote from the article briefly, "...that was how Francis pitched himself into the movie, but how he made it worthwhile stemmed from two separate ideas bleeding into one otherworldly vision." First, that the laws of physics would never apply when you were in the presence of a vampire. And second, if he was going to attempt to authentically return to the Victorian world of Stoker's 1897 novel, he would also return to the early world of cinema where the laws of physics were never even considered. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes. There's some lovely examples of a, exactly how they attempted to imitate the exact styles of special effects that might have been available to people creating cinema at the time when Stoker would have written his novel. Also, I'm going to mention a an article by nick lowris called the art of dracula 92 it's quite short but he has put some paintings up which show the influences that a lot of the matte paintings and other images from the film had Uh, in particular i'm very taken with um the matte painting of dracula's castle looking like a Uh, kind of a a man sitting on a throne and um, the the article points out that this is modeled on a Kupka painting from 1903 called The Black Idol and uh, they also point out that one of Dracula's costumes, the kind of gold shiny one, is in fact based on Gustav Klimt's The Kiss which I think most people are familiar with so I'll put a link to that as well worth checking out.
1: But I think that's that's the old world charm of Mm. the film and again i suppose you could say like you know when it's all said and done and you can sit back and be a bit like philosophical about it it does kind of create like dracula and the way he's like such a cultural icon for us is really because the book comes out in 1897 around the time that the first um cinemagraph is taking off and they even mentioned that in the film you mm. know when dracula comes to london he wants to see this amazing cinemagraph but um he is such like a, a, a literary icon but he's this film icon as well so i think all of those kind of what we would consider now sort of hokey special effects are all of a time but they there's so many references and such layered references hmm. to earlier versions of Dracula. And of course, the really kind of origins of Dracula on film with Nosferatu. And then the universal monster movies with Dracula, Bella Lugosi, of course, yeah. in 1931. So it, there's there's a lot of referencing in it. And a lot of kind of like things for like nerds like us and to kind of <laughs> kind of yeah. spot and see and talk about and, and 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 wonder
0: about I suppose the character would have been even then was so overexposed that you can't not make a film version of that's aware of its own film history
1: but you know I again I was only watching it the other night you know in preparation for for us having a chat and it was the first time I realized that there's like it's like an origin myth for Dracula. Mm. You like usually Dracula appears, and because we we seem to like know him instinctively, you know you don't have to explain his background. You don't have to explain go into all his genealogy as you know as a Transylvanian nobleman, or you don't have to like explain to anybody how he became the vampire. Mm. But I I don't know. I think Bram Stoker's Dracula, nineteen ninety two, is one that has really tackled the origin myth of Dracula. Now I see that with a pinch of salt because I have not watched, you know, there's at least about two hundred <laughs> films of dealing with Dracula and in his different guises. And um There's even one, it was mentioned in the making of of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, of uh, Dracula versus Billy the Kid. Yes. You know, which I I really want to go back and watch now. You know, there's probably, Hammer probably did one like Dracula versus Jack the Ripper or something like that. I'm
0: sure he fought ninjas and and stuff stuff, (laughs) at some point. But or in, Abbott and Costello yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't know I that's what really hooked me I think with the Francis Ford Cappella one is because it opens with this really dramatic, really over the top origin story of Dracula and I kind of, even, it and it does this kind of thing, you know from the kind of silent movies where it gives you the origin myth and that. then the credits and yeah. then it starts off you know, yeah. so you kind of have a reference point of of where this is going to and where it's come from yeah you know and i think the the choice as well of having like um anthony hopkins's voice to do the to do the narrate to narrate the story rather than like um gary oldman doing like the transylvanian accent there's something in that that really hooks you
0: i think um so so he called he decided to call it you know graham stoker's dracula so he clearly in his own head anyway he's saying i'm going to take this back to the original material in some way yeah and i suppose you know like like you say most people are familiar with dracula from film versions not from the book a lot of the tropes and the stereotypes associated with dracula come from the lugosi version largely yeah. and i suppose coppola is thinking i'm going to go back to the book in some ways and he does like he brings back characters that you don't you know the the three suitors for Mina aren't in every edition and he brings back a lot of these minor characters. Renfield is emphasised, mm-hmm. played h- hilariously by Tom Waits. <laughs> what a casting.
1: Yeah, what I happened? just think it's, it's that's so inspired. It's the voice. And so because when you first see it, you don't actually believe it's him. Yeah. You're like, "Is that Tom Waits?" <laughs> you know, but it, it's his voice. There's something, and I think there's there's something in the audio of this film too that Coppola really kind of paid attention to. It was I I there's there's some kind of lore that that Gary Oldman worked with, um, you know, like a singing coach to like lower the tone of his voice. For it, and of course you have Anthony Hopkins with all those Welsh kind of baritone um, tones in his voice. But um, there's something about the audio in this film um, that that's you know warrants a bit of investigation, doesn't it? Yeah, Yeah, it kind of gets you. It's like Dracula is like a full sensory experience. Nice,
0: you know. And we will talk about the theme as well because that's the mute. The score is. is, Yeah. We'll we'll get. I just want to finish like. to what extent is this a return to the book and then to what extent is he jamming in other new things? Well,
1: Coppola seemed to be, like, really insistent, you know, that he was, like, one of the only people in Hollywood who had actually read the book, you know. And I think he made them all come up to his vineyard in the Napa Valley when they were starting off rehearsals for the film. And, um and read the book out loud. Like, he made them sit other. around
0: the table and read the read book together. Read the
1: book out loud, yeah, to, so that they, would, that they would kind of get the whole scope of it. But in saying that, the material that's in the film is very only loosely based on the book. I mean, Dracula in the book, and I have a lovely version of it... Um, it has the original mustard kind oh, of lime green cover. Yeah, well, it's it's not a first edition; <laughs> it's a reprint that okay. came out like as an anniversary oh. edition. The the introductions by Colin Tobin, oh. but um, I got it actually in Waterstones here Lovely. in Cork. But it's um, the, what's in the film is only really loosely based on the book. Like Dracula is only really in the book for the first hmm. maybe. Third. Third, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, um, I I don't know exactly how many pages, but he's it's really only when Jonathan Harker goes to um, Transylvania and meets him. Once the whole deal is done and he he comes to London, um, you only kind of get glimpses of him, you know, in the graveyard in Whitby, and you know he's kind of vapor and mist, and he's kind of fleeting in and out yeah. of drawing rooms. But you don't really get a chance to kind of spend any time in his no. company ever again. No. And um, the fact then that it's written as kind of a series of like lost letters and diary entries, you know, yeah. some of them written, you know, after the fact, it's sort of there's, there's always this mystery and suspicion and rumour around him. Um, but but I do think the f- the film does that kind of well hmm. towards the end. You know, when Dracula does come to London too, because there's the the people, the main characters that are in London that have had experience of them all see a different side of him. Like Renfield sees kind of the evil master, Jonathan Harkin sees the devil, and Mina sees this handsome prince. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you never are quite sure who Dracula is.
0: Or he appears as a wolf, he appears yeah. as various creatures.
1: And the green mist. Mm. And I think that was quite terrifying in nineteen ninety two when he like <laughs> collapsed into this yes. whole bed Rat. of rats. Oh.
0: <laughs> And I suppose the single biggest element that is being put in here that wasn't in the book is—it's is, a love story. Yeah. There's none of that. None of that comes from the from the book. And I think I think one of the elements that people think is is it comes from the book is that um, Dracula is identified with Vlad Tepish, which yeah. is mentioned in the book. Um, and like Bram Stoker had come across him in his writing, but he didn't. As far as I know, he didn't really know much about him. It's just a little bit of local color. It's a little bit of historical. A tidbit of information just to make Dracula seem more real, but um, my understand there's a very good episode of Monster Talk where they do a lot of detail on this. I'll I'll put a link to it. But it seems to be the case that, like Stoker, yeah, Stoker only barely knew anything about um, the the historical Vlad.
1: Yeah, well, if anybody's interested, I know Marsh's Library in Dublin did a really good exhibition on books that Bram Stoker had checked ah. out of their library when and he was obviously doing research on um his Dracula character in the Dracula novel. And they produced this gorgeous um kind of catalogue booklet to go along with it and it shows him like you know that he checked out maps of the Carpathian mountains and things like that but yeah I think it was just sort of a bonus that he came across somebody Mm. now I know greater minds than ours have discussed where the Dracula (laughs) name has come from and that whole thing of Vlad Dracul and the son of the dragon and the order of the dragon that you know, was around in Romania at that time and was part of this kind of order of knights that were um, and, and of course there was like that eastern West divide and the great struggle against you know um, Turkish invasion that was happening at the time. but again yeah I think you know I don't think the Stoker went into any great depth and and definitely in the book. There isn't, as you say, the the emphasis on Vlad Tepes that there is in the film.
0: Okay, editing key in here. Even though quite a lot is known about the genesis of Dracula, Stoker himself uh, wrote quite a lot about where the ideas came from and kept a lot of notes, many of which have survived. Um, Despite all that, there is a lot of speculation and a lot of interesting theories. A lot of people have written about uh, some extra ideas and potential sources of inspiration because I think the novel... Is just so powerful and so important and um, it can become a bit of an intellectual quagmire occasionally uh, i'm going to have a cowardly retreat to academia and read a little bit from the shadow of dracula a life of bram stoker by paul murray um, and just a few of the places where stoker got his ideas for sure because it kind of does fit into our conversation here so um he writes stoker stated that his knowledge of vampire superstition came from a good deal of miscellaneous reading, especially Emily Girard's essays on Romanian superstitions, which had appeared in 1885, and were later expanded into a couple of volumes uh, that appeared in a magazine called The 19th Century in 1885. Her book, The Land Beyond the Forest, was published three years later. Stoker certainly took extensive notes from Girard, including on the identification of St. George's Day as the Witch's Sabbath, on the Cholomance, where Dracula would imbibe the devil's teachings in Stoker's novel, on 13 being an unlucky number, and on the vampire or Nosferatu. However, we also know that the appearance of the Carpathians, used in Jonathan Harker's journal of the 5th of May, was based on notes taken by Stoker from On the Track of the Crescent of 1885 by Major C. Johnson. Other sources for Transylvania included Charles Boner's Transylvania, Its Products and People of 1865, and William Wilkinson's An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia, with various political observations related to them from 1820, which he found in Whitby Public Library when holidaying there in 1890. And importantly, Wilkinson was Stoker's source for the historical Dracula, and it was from here that he derived the name.
1: I mean, in the film, they categorically say mm-hmm. that this is Vlad Tepes and this is Vlad the Impaler. I, I wonder
0: if he's more of a well-known pop culture figure now than he would have been in the in the Victorian times. I thought maybe.
1: I think so. I think like we we're, we we here in you know this far west in mm. Ireland in the UK, we only remember Vlad Tepes because we link him so strongly now to yeah. Dracula. And I think this film had. The biggest effect in doing that, mm-hmm. I think, p- the, you know, certain people who maybe studied this or had read further into the books knew about it, but I think a, a like a, a mass appeal, you know, audience only knew about this from from Francis Ford Coppola it only really came to me recently too when I was watching it, that whole scene where, like, you know um, Jonathan Harker gets off the train and he has to travel the rest of the journey on coach into the Carpathian and they come to the Borga Pass and he has to disembark and wait for you know, to be collected and out of like the mist comes this like really dark black coach and it's like it's ridden by there's a a very vague description of of who's driving the coach in the book and then of course um, the 1992 Bram Stoker's Dracula has this amazing outfit that he's in but he's silent Mm. and it has nearly all the elements of the the coach de Bauer of the death coach incredible image of a headless horseman or or a coach de Bauer and um that to me struck me only recently as one of the most Irishy elements of the whole story this this death goat, and then it kind of transpires is just because you know, Dracula can kind of manipulate like the laws of physics and time that he it was actually him. That was a coachman, but he was in disguise and kind of got to the castle and kind of got dressed and ready. and was I think that's what they're
0: implying in the film, that it's him.
1: Yeah, and that he's done all the cooking and everything as well, because, you know, nobody will go near him or near the castle.
0: I want to talk about the, the Orientalism in the film. That's one thing that, like they take from the book and they really go to town on the they, emphasizing the difference between you know the in, England as the western technological country and then the eastern Europe as uh, this strange oriental mysterious place
1: absolutely i think that this book you know coming very very late in the 19th century but does kind of excuse me that captured that whole colonial attitude about the east I mean advances in the West. But I think that mostly manifests itself or spectacularly manifests itself in the film in the costumes. Mm. The costumes in this are so lavish and incredible. And I think Coppella actually mentioned himself that he wanted the costumes to be the centerpiece of the movie. He kind of spent the most money, though you would you would think Um, It would have been on the special effects. But he actually spent the most money on the costumes. And in some ways, I mean, the way this is shot, that they did so much rehearsing before they actually shot it. The fact that they shot it on sound stages Mm. rather than locations. Theater-like. It is, yeah. It's more like a theatrical uh, production. And I wonder, is that... And like he had kind of great theatrical actors in it, like Mm. Anthony Hopkins and Gary Oldman. But... You and and Richard E. Grant, but you wonder, um, that is it a homage to like a Stoker's um own background in theatre, mm, you know, being yeah. this the manager of the Lyceum Theatre. Yeah. But which which does get a brief mention in the Little Easter egg does get a brief mention in the um in the film as well, the Lyceum. But um the costumes um are just really kind of supernatural on their own.
0: Dracula's costume in particular is Extremely orientalized. It looks like a, a Japanese kimono almost.
1: There's the this spectacular red one with a massive trail, and the one um, and 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 as he walks through the castle, yeah. it's like this like this really like trail of blood coming with him through the castle. But the one that always fascinated me is the one that you the first one you see him at yeah. in the start, the armor. and it's like this like really weird armor and the lady there was a japanese costume designer who was who was very well known for this style um eco uh, ishikawa i hope i haven't but- but- butchered the japanese there but she um she said that she took a lot of inspiration from animals, different types of animals to make these costumes. So like an armadillos with their armor and how that all fits mm-hmm. together and different types of lizards and things. And I think that's to pick up on the primeval kind mm-hmm. of side of Dracula. But it's that armor and it it almost looks like he's been flayed alive. Yes. yes. It's like um you know if you go to any of those you know, um body works exhibitions yeah. and and they have the real cadavers. And I, th- th- I, that says something as well about the impalement and mm.
0: the torture. The real dad was famous for, for yeah.
1: yeah, and um, and apparently it was very hard to move in, and it used to like fall <laughs> off. And there's that like really physical scene, you know, where like he stabs this the cross in the in the yeah. on the altar, and the blood pours out. But um, it that one always fascinated me. And then there's like the the way that. Even his, like, Victorian dress when he's in London has all this great chinoiserie and oriental element to it. You know, he's, like, this fantastical jewellery that he kind of adorns even, like, his day clothes in. And and I think there's something in those, like, um, those blue glasses he wears. Are they Prince Nazim glasses? I don't know. um, there, There is a great sense of, like, the... This kind of eastern culture kind of decadence yeah uh, but it's almost infiltrating you know it's like this idea that this is that here we are this island that's a bastion of yeah. christian values yeah. and progressive and scientific and all around us there's this kind of influence that can bleed in and poison us yeah. and seduce us
0: all straight from the book that's exactly yeah. what's going on with the book yeah
1: absolutely and i think the film love it or hate it because there are a lot of people who like really get irritated by bram stoker's dracula <laughs> <laughs> and it's over the topness yeah. but um i think love it or hate it you you have to you have to admit the costumes and the way what they suggest with the costumes and how they make the costumes work is really, really spectacular in this, this film. I think she actually won the Oscar for the best costume design for the film as well.
0: I'm sure I've heard, like, historians of the Victorian periods point out, like, look, the, the clothes here are so ridiculous that, as to be anachronistic. And yet, like, this film is not taking place in the real Victorian world. It's taking place in this, you know, imaginary, faux, theatrical world. Like you say, everything's on a soundstage. Everything is heightened
1: yeah and like even like the the relationships that people have like why would Lucy and Mina be friends you know in a, in a really class. classist society of Victorian London you know you have Mina as you know the kind of lower middle class girl who's learning to type because she wants to make a living for herself and then you have Lucy who's like obviously an, a, a nobleman's daughter and lives in this grand house and has all these suitors falling at her feet and she's all these lavish clothes and everything and they never really explain that so mm. yeah there's, there's but there's a whole kind of and I think Coppola does this really well um in particularly in the way that you know Dracula's shadow kind of works independently I to him that. I think that's a brilliant and I think the best kind of homage to that was um Bram, uh, Bart Simpson's Dracula <laughs> yeah, in the yeah, <laughs> tree eyes yeah, yeah. of horror <laughs> with Mr. Burns. Yeah. But there's um and that has got into culture a lot mm. of films reference that the shadow not working in sync with the body and the fact that, you know, like um like that like but he can manipulate the wind and he can he can do certain times and there's a suggestion, you know, like when he's having dinner and with Mina, it's like he's kinda of slowed time down or hurried time yeah. up and he can get her to remember things she's forgotten and um and you know when he he catches her tears and he crushes them into diamonds. Yeah. But I think it, it Coppola does that really well, that whole idea that um, the world is out of sync that something in the presence of Dracula um you know he he throws the world out of kilter and I think that that, that is established from the very very beginning even with the opening line of the film and you have like the Anthony Hopkins great you know seductive voice <laughs> saying um, you know 1452 um, uh, ni- or yeah. 1492 sorry excuse me I, I can't remember the date 1452 Constantinople yeah. has fallen <laughs> and like that to me you know as somebody who kind of looks into the history of belief and looks in particularly to the history of Catholicism is sort of suggesting that the Christian world has you know all our Christian yeah. you know, western values are up for grabs now we're under yeah. threat you know the world is slightly out of kilter and maybe you know um god or you know our lord or, is slightly not in charge anymore yeah. and it can lead for these sort of villains and devils mm-hmm. to make their way in but there is a suggestion from that moment that the world is sort of been knocked yeah. off its tilt. Well, fourteen
0: fifty three, I think, is the fall thanks, of Ian. Constantinople, and yeah, it's a huge psychic wound for yeah. Christendom. For hundreds of years, it's it's like this important point when everything everything was in danger.
1: Yeah, that, and I, I think that really comes true, and um, and like even there is like this great standoff between van helsing and dracula you know when they burst into the bedroom and the asylum and mina has succumbed to yeah. to this great prince vlad did and you
0: notice anthony hopkins is playing the priest in the, in the previous in the early timeline
1: yes and the, the, there's another i only picked up on this recently as well apparently you know when the the dinner scene and i love the dinner scene between dracula and Jonathan harker and that way, he gets really annoyed at you know when his like ancestry is questioned, yeah. and it's, this is no laughing matter. Yeah. And um, he uh, there, there's a portrait on the wall, and apparently they used a German portrait artist from the 15th century, Albrecht Durer. Durer,
0: yeah.
1: Um, he had a self portrait that they manipulated. Oh. Um, to be um, it's supposed to be the young. Vlad Tepes that we see at the start of the movie with the the long brown hair and the and the, and the, and the, and the sort of clean shaven face.
0: There's that one picture you always really see bright of him of, eyes, of yeah. the young man, yeah.
1: But if you look at a cosy, it actually looks like Anthony Hopkins <laughs> to me. <laughs> right. And I think there's some suggestion that Van Helsing's bloodline and Dracula's bloodline has been sort of Kind of swirling around each other all the way during through the centuries. There's some
0: interesting stuff in the film about reincarnation, and yes. obviously the same thing with Elizabetha and, um, and 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 um, Wilhelmina, which I don't, I can't, I don't think is in the book. Um, and and some some Victorian writers were really into this. Like H. R. Haggard was all into reincarnation, both in his books and in in, in his own personal beliefs. And o- on no way was this an uncommon you know in, in the world of the occult you know 19th century writers um reincarnation was absolutely a thing they were fascinated by and it, it feels right doesn't it even it's yeah. not in the book but it's in the film it feels it it, fe-
1: it's what sorry keen it's one of the only times where it actually seems like it seems believable you believe it mm. straight away that these characters are kind of leapfrogging through time and you know the oceans of time to find you (laughs) that you believe that and again it's something i only noticed recently too is that the mina's character whether she's elizabeth or or Armina, has a great penchant for wearing green yes and that kind of suggests that maybe our loves and likes and dislikes Mm. probably follow us genetically or in our bloodlines um through time as well but there must be I'd love to look into more about this colour why is she wearing a colour green
0: colours in in film can have meanings white usually means innocence and you know red means blood or violence and and, and, uh, I mean obviously uh, Vlad wears red frequently but not always it's not Not in some Chinese films like Zhang Yimou films colours always mean they're very precise about what the colour means um, it could just be the case that they want to remind you that it's the same character spiritually in different formats. Yeah,
1: that would make sense. That we do, you do associate it with her. And even though I only picked up on it, you know, recently, probably subconsciously, you've seen it from the start. Mm. Absolutely. But there is this whole. There's this great scene between standoff between Van Helsing and and Dracula, where he says, you know, um, I am. I I defended the cross, but I was betrayed. And look what your God has done to me. You know, and it's this great questioning of that Victorian Christianity, isn't it?
0: It's Lucifer.
1: It is. It's. It's. It's everybody who has, um, who has, who has fallen out with the church. You know. <laughs> it's every kind of doubt, and um, but also it kind of it has. It's uh, almost biblical in its reference too, because it has kind of a smack of you know of um, the he- Easter story. You know, my father, why have you abandoned me? Mm. You know, and there's there's this there's this great imagery throughout the, f- the film of resurrection and redemption and um of course the 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 byline in both the book and the film and and in, and, and it has featured in many Jackie films. like the blood is the life yes you know and um anybody who's grown up in a tr- a christian tradition would recognize that mm. from the other side that you know that um from the uh, jesus's life that the blood is the life you know and um that there is this great story of Of Dracula and he's almost good but almost evil, and how you know we we could we can go either way. You know, he has this supernatural power, but this human frailty as well.
0: I think in Victorian times, when the book is written, it wasn't the done thing to have your evil character be you know empathetic. You are not supposed he's supposed to represent bad things, and Christianity is good. End of story. You know, Englishness is good, foreignness is bad. Whereas in the nineties. We're, we're kind of more interested in these anti-heroes or interested in uh, the, the conflicted villain.
1: Yeah, and I think even um, Gary Oldman says that he wanted to play him like kind of a a, a, a Raphaelite kind of character, like a fallen angel. Tragedy. Uh, yeah, Tragedy. this tragic, you know, anti-hero, which, you know, probably would really appeal to somebody like Gary Oldman's personality, <laughs> you know, um, that made a career out of playing the anti-heroes. But... Um, It's yeah I I think that's what fascinates us too is like how does a character like Dracula survive that is you know very much associated with the dark side how does he survive then in our kind of modern cynical secular world where we don't have black and white anymore we have like kind of a really intermingling of grey you know and I think that's what Coppola's Dracula does really really well there is that he for the first time he is he's not the um evil tyrant you know that must be defeated at all costs Um he's somebody that we kind of you know c- kind of root for in a certain way yeah
0: and i guess i i say that's not a victorian thing but i mean you're heathcliff you know you're you're byron
1: yeah he is, yeah, well, I mean. There is a
0: history of that. There that is. Hero.
1: And I think Coppola was very much aware of that. And I think that's why he's so, like, over the top gothic, <laughs> is that he was, like, making absolutely sure that we root this version of dracula like with our romantic heroes
0: so was this a big like if you were a young gothic person or somebody who was into that style at the time when this film came out was this a big touchstone for that
1: absolutely well if, i can only speak for myself but i would say absolutely <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i don't know for, for years and years i have tried to track down various you know items of clothing that i've seen in that movie that i've wanted to wear and um even a couple of years ago I talked my, my hobby into um, dressing up as Bram Stoker's Dracula for Halloween um, I had this spectacular red dress that I got in a vintage shop and I dressed him up as you know the, the romantic prince that meets um, so I, I lived out my fantasy but um, I think for you, absolutely and I think it affected us on levels that we don't even realise you know, um, it was so again for a long time we got our kind of gothic ideas from books and it was well, definitely as a child i would have picked up a lot of my love of the gothic from reading Anne
0: Rice. Uh, yeah and <laughs> Rice
1: and I think around this time yeah that's an interesting point because around this time you had Bram Stoker's Dracula you would interviewed a vampire mm-hmm. which again is very over the top yeah, um, gothic, and, yeah. and in its costumes and we began to kind of kind get a visual reference hmm. you know for for gothicness and I think with, like, I remember seeing a, a version of Wuthering Heights as well funny you mentioned it around this time uh, like Ray Fiennes was Heathcliff no oh. um, and it uh, it was, you know, I I had a huge impact on me, like particularly visually and in terms of like clothing. I think as well, like in terms like of the music, of it as well. Do you know that um, they it it kind of put another layer into the music because it has such a sweeping score. It's not like gothic music. I like it's not like it's not scary. Cute, it's, it's
0: epic and world. and haunting and romantic
1: that's it you you kind of moved away from like listening to Depeche Mode and The Cure (laughs) and kind of thought well you can be a little bit more sophisticated in your taste
0: I will say the I think one of the main the main theme is like used in trailers all the time yeah like and what has been for years the one that didn't Dun- 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 Dar- dun- 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 the ta- it sounds like a train coming it makes me think of like something big and scary and ominous is coming slowly but uh, unstoppably towards you
1: yes it's like fate yeah
0: destiny but again it's, it's inva- like you said he it's all about you know england this bastion of christianity is being invaded by something evil and foreign and like dracula the novel is right in the center of the movement that we called invasion literature
1: yes and even like the this the opening lines of the book you know it's harker's journal where he says we and like like obviously points out (laughs) we we've we've crossed from the west Into the east, yeah,
0: you know, and he's in Budapest, like, he's not even that (laughs) far But he's like, Oh, this is strange and scary and foreign, too
1: far from home, yeah. And um, they're eating goulash, yeah, and they they put paprika on their chicken, oh my god, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah. But he's on a train when he's writing it. Mm. So I think that's what that music kind of captures, that yeah. mechanical <laughs> drive, <laughs> you know, that unstoppable <laughs> driving that goes along with it. But yeah, the mu the music in this is quite profound. And then Annie Lennox does kind of the song yeah. that like, you know, becomes popular. But um and I, I think that starts that whole kind of you know, then the Vampire had to have like a pop song, and then like you had like Batman, you remember, Kissed by a Rose. Yeah. There was all these. Prince. Like, yeah, these pop songs then all had to go along with these movies. That
0: went on right up until the end of the early early 21st century, maybe?
1: Yeah, there, there was like you had to have kind of a modern hook yeah. to the score, but the score of Dracula is kind of really monumental, and I think it, it wouldn't be the same movie without it. That's, we're really really driven by the music in it
0: we should mention some of the stuff that people don't like about it like, so I, I think amongst a lot of people this film is now quite liked I think there's uh, been a I think over time people have had a some people ironically like it some people just very wholeheartedly love the gothicism of it but to some people it's a bit of a joke and I think that's largely down to a few acting choices
1: absolutely yeah I mean like there's it's you know it's a bit of a cult classic it was really successful at the box office. I think it took in you know, like over. I think it was like two hundred and fifty million dollars at the time. And think like that's nearly probably like thirty years ago now. Like that's going to be that was probably quite a lot of money, and it still sounds like a lot of money. But I think over the years, I think it was really popular on VHS tape. And over the years, it has kind of developed a bit of a cult status, really. But as you say, it's a bit of a pastiche as well. And people do, and I, as I say, it's it's kind of a marmite. People love or hate it. I know a lot of people that really, it really irritates. And I think, yeah, the acting choices are are a bit... Um, I have to say, I've uh, the, the two girls always sort of grated on me, even though I love Winona Reiner in her in the Elizabether kind of mood, and I think she does that really well. Her sort of faux English accent is Mina <laughs> just gets me, and then sometimes Lucy, Lucy in her insistence uh, and in their kind of sugar-coated, yeah. you know, kind of girly.
0: In my dreams, I yeah, did. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> she kind of gets to me. But I think the one that stands out for everybody is Keanu Reeves' performance in this.
0: Do you think it was some kind of a compromise? Like, you know, we're being given this budget, we have to have the young hot star who the kids like.
1: Well, absolutely. I I do think that Coppola was very, very conscious in this movie of spending money and making money. And I think this was sort of... um, kind of his last stand you know this was the Alamo he had to kind of make this work or else you know everything was going to go um, by the wayside and I think having like when you think back to 1992 I for me anyway Keanu Reeves used to always be in Smash It's magazines yeah, he was in yeah. all the girls magazines and he had kind of come onto the scene uh, you know in these you know Hollywood California teen movies yeah. and um that he wasn't probably the person we know now in 2021, you know, after going through the whole matrix and all of no, that he was the beach bum of, yeah he was he you're expecting
0: harker to turn around and say dude
1: yeah yeah that bill and ted mm, sort yeah. of thing he couldn't he ne- he didn't shake that off for a very very long time and i think at the time to the haircut you know when, like that step haircut was very much in vogue <laughs> and um he had all the hallmarks of like your teenage girl like heartthrob, heartthrob. but and then when you put him you know, next to, you know, actors like Anthony Hopkins, you know, who had just come off the back of Hannibal Lecter. Mm. Um, and you kind of forget that, like, you know, had just won the Oscar, come off the back of I, I will of say, Hannibal
0: I've Lecter. watched The Wolfman recently, and, and Anthony Hopkins can chew the scenery just as good as anyone. Yeah. <laughs> He's quite funny in this, isn't he? He
1: is, and apparently he actually, like, actively went after the part. There's a rumour that um, Liam Neeson, it, um, it audition oh. and I, if you can remember, remember Liam Neeson was kind of having a bit of a moment around this time as well he'd been like in Rob Roy and mm. Shingler's List and all these yeah. ones and um, I think Shingler's came a bit after but you know he was having a bit of a yeah. moment and um, but Hopkins apparently deliberately went after this part and was uh, and quite enjoyed
0: it mm. And you can tell that crazy scene where he just starts dancing and yeah. laughing and singing for you know a few times.
1: And there's 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 fantastic rehearsal footage of that available because they rehearsed and rehearsed this movie a lot, and they kind of had like a digital like um, a storyboard that they did that was almost like a cartoon. And um, I think they did so much rehearsal was because you know Coppola wanted to limit it the amount of time that they were actually filming. Um, so when they got on set, it was basically you know you just took a couple of takes because you had it ready to go but um there's this fantastic where he explains how that he he came up with this idea of the dancing, and he while they dance towards Anthony the Hopkins. end yeah he's he smells yeah. Mina's face because he explains that he thinks that van Helsing would uh, he, he he's looking to see was she in contact with Dracula, oh.
0: Oh. but I just.
1: I think it's a real Hannibal Lecter type of reflex, isn't it? It's something that he brought from that character. And, like, you know, when you look at the movie, sometimes, like, you have these great... You know iconic characters of of like horror. You have like like Hannibal Lecter and Dracula. So it's it is a homage to those older movies where it's like Dracula versus. He, he in this, you have like Dracula versus Hannibal Lecter in some ways.
0: Firstly, I, I like the implication that like his bloodline has followed the Dracula's yeah. through the centuries. You know, trying to look, trying to stop them or or save them or whatnot. Um, I think he gives a little. There's something a little bit sinister about Van Helsing because Absolutely. it's like he knows what's going on but he's never straight with everybody. He's always smirking. He yeah. he doesn't tell them what's going on and he's always making these like really crude jokes. You know like he says, oh, "We we have to cut off our head. Yeah. But first we have to go and have I have to eat some steak, you know, some steak." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're going through this horrific thing and I'm going to be kind of smarmy about it because I know what's up.
1: Yeah, and they, like there's this wonderful like revelation um moment too where he's like he's like um I think it is Jonathan Harker confronting me. He's like, "You sound like you admire the man," yeah. and he's like, "Yeah." In in okay. life, he was this extraordinary. He survived beyond the grave, and it's almost like he's manipulating the characters so he can get to Dracula and have this big showdown. He's mm. like, "His whole life," and I I think there is a line in the movie where he's like says something like, "My whole life's been leading up to this, or I've been following you. This is my purpose, my destiny." You and there's that bit right towards the end where mina is turning and she kind of seduces him um, when they're camped outside castle dracula and uh, yeah he he has like these various shades of gray in him as well and there's nobody more perfect to play him then than anthony hopkins particularly at this time in his life mm. but i do think going back to keanu reeves when you push him up next to anthony hopkins gary Oman, and then kind of even minor characters like as i say like richard e grant tom and tom waits these people you're he's that that's tipping the scales like yeah. out of his favor he's really you know?
0: bless him he's trying really hard he is <laughs> he's got his and work then, cut out for him there is a take and you take or leave this but there's a take among some fans who like this film so much that they even like yana reeves accent and they'll say well actually Harker is a bit of a he's a bit of a weak willy-nilly he's a bit of a weak sauce kind of a character and he's supposed to be out of his element especially at the beginning when he's in the castle and you know for a main character or a hero central hero he's pretty ineffectual even in the book a lot of commentators have said this over the years and maybe having him played by this guy who's just so woefully out of his depth is part That's of it really
1: interesting and i it does make sense in a way like when you say it like that doesn't it because like if 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 harker was all like this kind of big macho, brooding yeah. macho character it wouldn't really work as well it has to be somebody that um and i don't know is it a commentary as well by stoker but you know like that our extreme politeness in the victorian sense of it you know, can kind of rob us of the skills that we need to protect ourselves.
0: There's definitely some interesting stuff happening with, you know, he's comparing Britain with America. So um, yeah. Qu- Quincy Morris is the American oh. and Stoker constantly says stuff like, you know, well, if, if this is an example of the flower of American manhood, then, you know, that nation has got good thing big things coming for it yeah. and you know this is being written just at the time when i think the british empire is just starting to realize that maybe the america america, america saying, will yeah. will overtake them at some point in the future
1: yeah and i like that that whole reference in the film as well to quincy's big bowie knife i think that's done so well
0: doesn't he what does he say something like you know, miss uh yeah, at least hotter than like, a
1: oh oh oh, oh, oh uh, quincy can i touch it can i touch it <laughs>
0: But he said something like she's hotter than a... a
1: yeah, um, it's somebody who rides bareback naked or something like along those lines. Yeah, it is. Um, Yeah, there is... A, Stoker is kind of, I think, trying to kind of say something about masculinities in this book. And, you know, about how kind of the Victorian culture is kind of like strangled or um, emasculated. Some elements, some elements I, of...
0: Yeah, of British culture uh, Churchill who was effectively a Victorian in, yeah. in his outlook and he writes a book called A uh, History of the English or the English Speaking Peoples which is a, a title deliberately attempted to rope in the Americans and say look you've left us but we're still together and, and you can't help but sense like this idea at that time in England of like ha- gotta keep the Americans on side because they, it looks like they're gonna be the future
1: yeah and I, I think so yeah, because there's no other reason why Quincy would be in the book mm. There's absolutely no other reason, mm. and he's like, it's it's not him that defeats Dracula either, you know. So yeah, there's there's some reason that but that Stoker had him, definitely definitely they are. And interestingly
0: only um, Van Helsing who is a foreigner yeah knows what to do.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really good point.
0: Because most people interpret the like the the core team and um, the usual interpretation in the book is that they're supposed to represent like the 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 brightest and the best of both English and American culture yeah. and but they also need to work together. So individually none of them is is much of a hero, but they work together, they use science They use medicine. They use modern transport Mm -hmm. because Dracula travels by ship. They travel by train, you know, and and together using the powers of Western modernity and working together. So it's not an individualist story. It's a team now story. In
1: Van Helsing's character as well, and I think again you you see this quite early in the film when they introduce him. You know, in the operating theatre, the lecture theatre, and he's talking about venereal disease. It's that he has He's a, a, he's a well known Medical doctor He says oh you've perfected this um, Technique of taking blood And yeah. blood transfusions So he has all this scientific background But it's his knowledge of the superstition yeah, of yeah. yeah it's that book He has you know yeah. the vampire <laughs> the book that he has Is, um, is what saves them mm. And they, you know they, There's this that brilliant scene too do you know, Where he kind of like um trap t- teleports yeah. from one side to the next it's like
0: they're implying he has some like, powers yeah,
1: it's like you know to, to to truly you know um vanquish evil we need to kind of to be have a, a bit of both yeah. we need the science and the superstition to And it's come like together. he's just
0: pulling this silly little trick just to remind them like hey there's yeah. you know there's more in out there than in your philosophy yeah and he says <laughs> that, you do like,
1: yeah there's something out there you know <laughs> not in here um that's uh, that's really kind of and the fact that dracula then kind of has this sort of reverse mentality where he's soaked in supernaturalism and and um superstition and he's craving the modernity mm. All the time, he's craving, you know, to see the cinemagraph The yeah. way he dresses, yeah. he buys the newspaper.
0: Yeah, he does, um,
1: yeah. you know, uh, he wants to know the facts.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, and that he studies life in
0: England before he travels. Comes. I think we're coming up to time on that. Is there any element of the film or the story we dipped into the book a bit as well? Because I think one of the most interesting things is where the film sticks to the book and where it departs. Um, but is there anything we haven't covered that we you you think we should mention? I
1: We've kind of got around to everybody have we not
0: okay well in that case to, to wrap up um uh, you know is there anything if, if people are interested in dracula or in the film or whatnot is there anything worth looking at or going to see or reading that you've come across in your in your time
1: well i would say definitely if you haven't or already come across it in your life do check out Francis Ford Coppella's Bram Stoker's Dracula and um, give it a chance. Just go at it with a completely open mind. Um, I, would, I would suggest that I think Marsh's Library, you can still look at the their um, Bram Stoker collection. Um, I think they they, they make that avi- available on their website, and I think there are some copies of that booklet still available, and it's it's beautifully produced and well worth it. Um, another book again i think a lot of people like it a lot of people hate it but i i loved it i i read it when it came out and it was a bestseller it was a bit of a page turner it was um elizabeth Kostova's the historian oh, Pisto-
0: yeah, i read that
1: yeah and it's it's her kind of take on when the historical dracula meets the supernatural dracula and it kind of questions all our kind of notions about Um, Who we think Dracula is but also kind of picks up on those questions too about Superstitions and who we are and scientific knowledge and how that's changed us So I would really really recommend that and there's been some like kind of good sort of Saturday night Dracula movies Came out in recent years one that I have a particular fondness for because it was shot um in in limavady of all places is a uh, dracula untold oh. which is another kind of but it's more sort of like a marvel comic origin myth of dracula <laughs> but it does uh, it picks up a lot i think on um the story that coppola was trying to kind of have access at the start of uh, bram stoker's dracula um but it gives it the benefit of all those digital special effects, you know, that he was, he was so against or didn't want in his film. So, I, Draclan Told is very good as well, I think. But again, it, it's, it's something that you have to kind of, you know, just kick back and relax. Don't be watching this for any sort of great, you know, <laughs> <laughs> secrets uh, uh, our, um, our revelationary moments. It's not going to come with that.
0: I, I've probably recommended far worse films on the show, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my recommendation will be the book From the Shadow of Dracula by Paul Murray. So if you're interested in Stoker himself and his life and his ideas... Um i recommend that one
1: yeah and they, again there's some great work online at the moment about dracula you know as i say, um the Sligo stoker society they have a lot of stuff available and they um and they have quite of an active active twitter and um, of course uh, the bram stoker festival that we hope will be up and running um, once we're all sort of semi back to normal, um so th- there is quite a if you if you get interested in this or you know Bram Stoker's Dracula the movie whets your appetite. There is like a lot of things out there that you can. There's a Dracula for everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice <laughs> yeah. way of putting
0: it. Victoria, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on.
1: It was great coming on, Keen. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, folks, I'm back at the cabin. I'm out of ale. I'm certainly out of Tanora, So I guess that means that it is about time for this episode. And that's all we have for you fine folks. So once again, huge thanks to the awesome Victoria. Always great fun talking to her and uh, always great fun speaking to someone uh, when they're talking about something that they, they, they really care about and they really enjoy. Hopefully that came out in the episode as you were listening uh, as always reach out say hello on twitter we are at strange ireland on instagram we are wide atlantic weird podcast and as always you can help the show out sending us a one-off donation of coffee no strings attached a very nice way to say thanks over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic so until next time stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil Following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the
1: existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.